Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. From Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. You know, why would we want to allow for indigenous people to come back in and steward the land? Because that then puts a risk to the jobs that are created through this industrial fire complex, for instance. You know, we come back to our understandings of our traditional stories and law. You know, fire is, for many of us, it is the law of the land. We know from the time of creation that fire has existed, and we also know that we were given tools to learn how to use fire within our landscape, to steward the land, and to you know create warmth for ourselves, and all the different reasons why we might use fire. Today on American Indian Airwaves, an in-depth conversation on how the California fires are impacting California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations, as well as the intergenerational implications from the devastation caused by the fires and how California indigenous traditional forms of fire management practices could be a new method for fire management practices is part of learning how to steward the lands. Plus more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright the lone Since the start of 2020, California has seen almost 7,900 fires destroying or damaging a total of 6,200 structures. California alone has seen more than 3.4 million acres burn, and according to the National Interagency Fire Center, they've reported 79 large uncontained fires burning across the western United States. In addition, more than two dozen fires have been burning for more than 30 days. On today's program here on American Indian Airwaves, we have an in-depth conversation with Don Hankins. He's from the Miwok Nation and professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State. His areas of research include ecology, biodiversity, public policy, and water. I spoke with Don Hankins regarding the implications and the impacts the California fires are having on California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations. With 109 federally recognized indigenous nations in the state of California and scores of other California indigenous nations unfederally recognized and indigenous peoples living on allotted lands, the California fires over the past several years, and particularly this year, continue to wreak havoc on the traditional practices of California indigenous peoples. Don Hankins talks about the implications the fires will have intergenerationally, traditional forms of fire management, and how they could be 
new practices for a lot of people, not for California indigenous peoples, but how California indigenous traditional fire management practices could be a new method for learning how to steward the land for future generations and cultural sustainability. And now Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation, professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State, on the implications that California fires are having on California indigenous peoples. Okay, well, so, you know, if we think about where some of these fires are taking place, obviously, you know, we've got tribal communities up and down the state uh, in terms of, like, federally recognized tribes whose lands are being impacted or have been impacted by these fires. Think about Morongo, Karuk, Berry Creek, you know, are, are some of those that have been impacted. And then, you know, for like the state recognized, some of the state recognized tribes, you know, we think to the Santa Cruz, San Mateo County coastal areas with Amamutsen, for instance, and, and some of the work that they've been doing is now impacted by the, uh, the lightning complex there. And then, you know, beyond that are just the overall landscape scale type impacts that we experience to our ancestral homelands. Those specific impacts include impacts to sacred sites, other cultural sites, and the resources, if you, to to use that term, which I don't like to use, but, you know, if we think about what that means, you know, basket collection sites, medicine collection sites, you know, hunting grounds, uh, fishing grounds, ultimately, are all being impacted by these fires. And so when we consider that, there's a lot of impacts that are taking place, aside from, you know, the loss of homes, the loss of uh, community and the impacts to community that are there that we're all experiencing at this point. When you're you're talking about some of the the implications of the fires, and let's talk about the causal factors of these fires because they're not quote unquote natural. And I can't help but think about the notion of fires and this violent historical legacy of settler colonialism and this idea of scorched earth policies uh, by colonists, whether it be, you know, the corporate enterprise of the establishment of the Virginia colony, where uh, once they realized tobacco as a medicine for indigenous peoples could be commodified as a commercial product to exploit, they just burned the land and just monocropped, started monocropping tobacco to export for commercial reasons to, you know, even here in the West Coast, and the establishment of the mission system, where they went and engaged in this process of scorched earth policy and then just recolonize the land. And I was wondering if you can make kind of make those connections for our listeners in relationship to the fires being unnatural and how it's a, a continued legacy of uh, violence perpetuated not just against indigenous peoples, but all of our relations that culturally sustain us, right? The plants and the animals um, in particular. Well, as, as you ask that question, there's a lot of different ways that I could potentially go with that. You know, when I, when I first think about it, you know, one of, the, one of the kind of humorous approaches that I might take on it is to think about the fear of, of the commodification of fire as a, as a corporate uh, entity, potentially, right? Right. Um, the, and there is this thing that we, you know, in the fire world, we call it the industrial fire complex, which is, mm. you know, like the suppression industry and the, the idea of, of being able to make money off of these kind of fires and, 
you know, why would we want to allow for Indigenous people to come back in and steward the land? Because that then puts a risk to the jobs that are created through this industrial fire complex, for instance. Right. Um, so, you know, like there's that there's that side of it. But I also, I guess, when I when I think about the long term implications of it, you know, and, and this is where you know we come back to our understandings of our traditional stories and law. You know, fire is for many of us it is the law of the land. We know from the time of creation that fire has existed, and we also know that we were given tools to learn how to use fire within our landscape to steward the land and to, you know, create warmth for ourselves and all the different reasons why we might use fire. And I guess when I think about it in that sense, given the policies that have come down from, you know, early Spanish times here in California through European American settlement in in, you know, the 1830s, 1850s time frame in the Central Central Valley with the gold rush and, right. and then the establishment of the state, you know, and this is not just happening here in the state, but it's happening, you know, across the country and, and a lot of it, you know, particularly for the cultures of fire that exist here out west, there's a lot of um, change that takes place. And so that that law that we know, we didn't necessarily relinquish our rights to it. And I think that while we haven't been able to practice it, mainly because of fear from the, what do you want to say, the, the impacts that we've had in terms of genocide and, and the harshness of those policies that, that really led to their curtailment of a fire at the landscape scale, you know, there's still that knowledge base that's there that tells us how and, and where and why and what and all the di- those different factors that, that bring us to being able to burn and bring that back. So, you know, I, as I see these fires taking place, and this is something that's often a common theme for me in looking at these fires, and I live near where the campfire happened in 2018 here in Butte County in the Konkau, uh, Koyomkawi-speaking people in their homelands. That, to me, when I saw that and when I've seen all these other fires taking place, is that this is the law of the land serving as a cre- correction to the lack of fire within the landscape and the and our inability to be able to steward it. And so I think that at this point, those ancestral fires that we, our ancestors, had experienced in the time of creation are now being the common law, if you will, for all people living in our lands and even ourselves. But I would say that you know we still have the ability because of the tools that we were given, that knowledge we were given, to be able to reassert that back onto the landscape. And so I think at this point in time, what is really surfacing is the opportunity for us to lead by example. And, you know, at this point, the leading by example is happening in California. We do have tribes and practitioners in their own lands who are burning at, at some scale. Um, you know, that by my own estimation, thinking about how much I personally burn on an annual basis and thinking about the other practitioners who I know who do burn is pretty small. You know, we're probably talking at most a few thousand acres annually within the state. But I think that that demonstration and that ability to include people, you know, be it indigenous, uh, tribal, or otherwise, 
that if we're going to live in this world, if we're going to survive in this world, and, and, and our responsibility, you know, as indigenous people, we've always, I guess, extended uh, a welcomeness to other people. We have responsibility for those other people living within our homelands, which is tremendous, you know, given that they don't, they don't necessarily recognize that, that reciprocal relationship and that obligation. But I think that if we can teach and learn to live in that way, that old way of knowing and, and doing within the landscape, then I think that's our best hope in moving forward, you know, in terms of being able to hopefully get ahead of, of or at least in sync with where uh, the shift in the climate has, has gone and where it will continue to go to make our landscapes and our communities more resilient going forward. In terms of um, best practices or cultural best practices, and and also with the understanding that we haven't fully felt the full impacts of of the the fires right now, and and I can't help but think of, you know, the Montecito uh, mudslides a few years ago that just devastated the land, and the reasons why those mudslides occurred is because of the fires uh, before that, and then the you know the heavy torrential rains and. And that led to substantial mudslides uh, throughout the region. And some of the other implications was, as you expressed, the damage to indigenous people's sacred sites. But with the fires and connecting that to the air and the water and the plants and animals, right? We've seen kind of these mass uh, blocks of damage to the land and and certain species or uh, relatives dying off in large numbers. And so how does the, just given the large swaths of lands that have been burned, how does indigenous cultural practices help nurture and restore or try to restore a balance just given how much has been harmed and thrown out of balance at this point? Right. Well, yeah, as you're as you ask that, I'm thinking of a couple of different things and, you know, thinking about in particular news that, that has come out this week about the the loss of some of the condor chicks in the Big Sur coastline area just floated in my head as you were as you were mentioning those things and I think about, you know, those, you know, animals if you will now that are part of our creation, that are part of our story that give us that responsibility and obligation within the landscape. You know, we're seeing them being impacted by it. We're seeing so much more beyond that. You bring up the the mud slides and different things like that. Those are all things that will be impacted. But I think that the opportunity that we have at this point, mm-hmm. and this is coming back to that idea of story, is that you know, in the in those first fires that burned across the landscape, they you know they often say that the world burned the world, you know, not just, you know, these acres over here. And you're listening to an interview here on American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Don Hankins. He's from the Miwok Nation and professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State. He's speaking on the impact and implications the California fires are having on California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations lands, traditions, storytelling, and the possibility of culturally sustainable futures. And now back to the interview. So, you know, I, when we learn to use fire as a tool, then that fire that we then are using is helping to correct and restore and put balance back into the landscape. 
And so while we have a lot of areas of the state that have been devastated by high severity fires and high frequency fires, and I think about some of the areas down in you know the Los Angeles area, north of Los Angeles in particular, um, along the Highway 5 corridor, you know those are places that have seen a lot of fire, but um, not necessarily the right kind of fire. So if we were to think about those places and the opportunities that exist there, when we have fires that do take place that are as massive as some of these ones are, there's an opportunity for us to be able to come back in and steward again in those places to help them to rehabilitate. And, you know, obviously if we were to walk through or drive through some of these these areas and see that there's still standing forest, there's still, you know, healthy ecosystems, there's, you know, intact native grasslands that are in some of these places. And those are those are the things that we really need to be focusing on so that as we steward, we can steward in a way to allow for the regeneration across the landscape. And what I mean by that is that, you know, those standing forests are going to be the seed source for the adjacent areas. And, you know, in time, with the right stewardship, we'll be able to get those plants back out across the landscape and hopefully also then minimize some of the invasive species that have come in that are really fortifying the type of fire behavior that, that we see in some of these places, um, particularly the annual grasses that, that uh, dry very quickly and can burn over a larger portion of the year than a lot of our native perennial grasses do. You know, that's just an example of some of that shift. But then we also think about, you know, as you bring up the water, you know, and what are our opportunities within the the systems to be able to resolve some of those issues? What can we be doing in, in areas where hill slopes on erodible soils and, and drainages that come through those areas, what can we do now to enhance some of those places to capture sediment, to um, A-grade the system in a way that we can actually enhance groundwater recharge and storage within the landscape to be able to make it more um, resistant to fire in the future? And be able to recover more rapidly from any future fires, be it wildfire or, you know, our, our burning or other people's burning through, say, burn, prescribed burning or whatever. So I think there's a lot of opportunity that's there, um, but we need to be thinking about it and we need to be, you know, proactive in, in doing the work rather than just, you know, kind of standing on the sidelines and letting other people do what has often been done in these kind of areas. In expanding upon water, because you know California is still in a drought, so how uh, the, how does the situation of this systemic drought aggravate the situation, and and does it hamper, or how does it hamper, or make more difficult, if you will, this uh, attempt to try to restore the balance uh, of the land? Yeah, well, that's a really important. Thing to pay attention to, um, you know, in, in some of the interviews that we've heard recently, you know, the officials from the state, including the governor, talking about the drought lasting for five years or whatever. Yeah. In my assessment of it, the drought has been around for at least the last 20 years, and mm-hmm. we've had some some punctuation of that drought with some years of, of pretty heavy rain, but not enough to actually allow for the recharge in the landscape to allow for, say, the the forested ecosystems to be able to maintain the moisture levels throughout the season as is needed. So our groundwater tables are dropping, and, you know, there's there's not been a sufficient amount of rain, at least in the time frames that the soil can absorb it, to uh, allow for that recharge to take place and bring our aquifers back up to where they need to be. 
So the opportunities there to think about, well, one, how can fire be used to naturally thin the forest, right? Um, And it's not just forested ecosystems, but we can also think about chaparral communities, for instance, and other woody vegetation communities. You know, how can fire be put within the landscape to allow for base flow within our, our streams? And I know of many cases where people talk about, you know, streams that, are, that show up on a topographic map as a blue line stream. And, you know, if you go to some of these places now, they're dry because there's so much demand for the water through those plants, what we call the, you know, the evapotranspiration processes that we no longer then have flow in them. But once you bring fire in and you reduce the vegetation that's alive on that landscape, then you end up with flow happening again. So that's one side of it. And then, and then the other side of it is then thinking about, well, how can we build structures within the landscape, say rock drop structures or you know, people within the restoration world refer to like zuni bowls to um, stop erosion processes and, and real formation where we're losing soil and we're losing the soil uh, moisture holding capacity. So if we can work to A-grade systems that are going to naturally degrade because of, uh, of a high-severity fire, for instance, then we can actually enhance the storage of water within these places. And I think on a state policy level, we're starting to see more awareness of that. You know, we're seeing that, that within uh, the Sierras, for instance, you know, there's a lot more interest in that connection between the land stewardship, the, you know, the forest uh, and fire relationship, and also the water side of it. And, for instance, like we think of the Sierra Nevada Conservancy has the Watershed Improvement Program that, that is kind of focused on that. It's not entirely an indigenous process, but it's definitely something that, you know, our ancestors had a very keen understanding of. You know, when we think about our relationships and the stewardship, it's not, it's not just a one-sided thing. It's not just, you know, the land and it's not just the fire, you know, it's, it's all the things working together. It's the, it's the air, it's the water, the fire, and the land in particular working together. And, you know, when we, when we do one action in one of those areas, then it redistributes the energy into one of the, one of the remaining areas, right? In listening to, uh, to your response to the previous question, I was thinking about, um, you know, what does consultation look like between the state and California indigenous peoples. And, and I can't help but think of a previous interview I did a few years ago with um, the Honorable Ron Good from the North Folk Mono Nation um, and his work and, and contributions in uh, the production of the California Fourth Climate Change Assessment Report right of 2018. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and not to quote him, but, you know, his characterization of... Um, of consultation and working with the state was, uh, to put it diplomatically, um, problematic and deficient. Maybe de- deficient is the better word. So how, how does this notion of sovereignty and consultation between California indigenous peoples and the state look like, given the precarious times and, and the situation that we're in right now? Well, so the, the report that you mentioned, the fourth climate assessment report was actually one that I also co-authored, and Ron was, was the uh, lead coordinating author of that. Right. But, uh, so, so I have familiarity with that process. And in that example, you know, I, I think of, I think of uh, you know, here, here's Governor Brown at the time, you know, through the Office of, uh, of Planning and Research, 
sending staff out to say, oh, we, we need to get, the, you know, we'd like to have this indigenous uh, component to the fourth climate assessment report. So we're going to hire some consultants, and those consultants are going to go work with, with tribes to get this information so that we can have this report. And ultimately, they, you know, they reached out to a few tribal communities right. and organizations to contribute to it, but no funding was provided to allow for the time to do it. So just like everything else that exists in, in the idea of consultation, you know, and this is, the, this is the thing about the consultation, is that a lot of us end up doing it because volunteering to do it because it means something to us, you right. know. Right. But that's something that we really need to see a, a change to. You know, it's not... It's not a matter of consultation. It's a matter of giving us the opportunity to actually do the things that we know how to do already, right. and um, and stand back and watch us. You know, <laughs> learn, <laughs> learn with us. Don't, well, maybe not just stand there and watch us, but but come and do with us. You know, and but lead, use our leadership and our way of doing it, um, and not in an appropriative way, but work side by side with us to to be able to do those sorts of things. And I think that's really the flaw with the with the idea of government to government consultation is that it's often this idea of uh, extraction, right? right? You know, one thing that kind of floats in my mind as an academic right now is thinking about the Arnstein's ladder of, uh, of participation, right? right? You know, where there's eight steps to it, you know, beginning with uh, total, total uh, manipulation to, you know, the upper end of it is really getting to the level of, of sovereignty. And in the middle is this consultation thing where, you know, we're, we're still being told this is what we're going to do, but how do you feel about it, you know? Hey, we're going to come in and we're going to we're going to step all over your sacred grounds where only certain people from your tribe were historically allowed to go to, and um, we know that's important to you. But hey, we want to create a trail that goes through there so that other people can enjoy it. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that happens in consultation, right? Well, and it makes me think too is like, what does consultation mean? Who's defining it? And 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 who's kind of leading leading it as you were just uh, expressing? Right. right. You know, so who who actually gets to define it? And then if indigenous peoples are not be, uh, being respected and, and uh, as sovereigns, if you will, and I'll put that in quotes, then, you know, um, what what does consultation mean for indigenous peoples and their respect to First Nations in, right. in working with the state? Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that, you know, and based on a lot of the consultation projects that I have been involved in, you know, we often bring up the idea that, you know, the, the consultation process doesn't end with that particular project. You know, if we're, if this relationship is supposed to be meaningful and we're supposed to be looking to make change in a positive direction, then we should kind of be attached in a more long-term discussion with the leaders of these agencies and organizations that we're working with beyond just a project-by-project kind of a thing. You know, it's like we should be lining out what our priorities are within the landscape, you know, and our watersheds and so forth uh, in the ocean to be able to, you know, say, these are the things that we really feel strongly about. These are the things that we want to see action on. And how can you help us to get there? You know, what resources do you need to get there? We can apply for some grants. We can do this or that. Um, But how, how can we help each other to get to that that point. Don, I wanted to bring in uh, the topic of COVID-19, particularly when we talk when we're talking about, you know, the negative impacts the California fires are having on the land and California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations and and just considering how much uh, 
ecological devastation or forms of ecocide that have happened across Mother Earth and and the fact that California is in a 20-plus year drought. And when we talk about you know COVID-19 in the context of environmental or ecological destructions, uh, so much of Mother Earth has been damaged, it really permits for the spreading of the COVID-19 uh, uh, virus in, in really unhindered and unobstructive ways. So when we're talking about California Indigenous Nations cultural practices and, and traditional forms of fire management practices and just how much environmental devastation or wounding of Mother Earth there is, how does California Indigenous traditions and traditional fire management practices help stop or mitigate the spread of COVID-19 or future diseases? Right. Well, uh, I don't know if, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of of a specific example on that one. You know, as I think about the situation with COVID in some communities, um, certainly it has, it has, you know, taken, taken its toll. Um, you know, and we see that, that taking place in some of the communities that are currently being impacted by fires and, and on the tribal front. But I guess, you know, when I think about just in general, our own well-being, you know, our, our health, our livelihoods and, and that connection, I see that there's, you know, the discussion around like, how do we, how do we, deal with wildfires in the time of covid you know like there's a there's that part of it and that's obviously a challenge when we're thinking about it from a um you know fire suppression kind of side of things right but then there's also the idea of of empowering families to be able to do something on their own and i can speak from my own experience living in the mountains this past season and we've been home now for going on seven months i guess you know since march Mm, um you know, isolating, waiting for this thing to pass so that we can safely see family and and elderly people that we cherish, you know, once this is over. But the opportunity of being home and living on on property that we steward, that um, really provided us some time to actually engage in those activities. So as a family, we were able to maintain our own health and well-being, mental health, you know, physical health, all of that through being active on the land. And so during the spring when we still had some rain, you know, we were out doing some removal of, you know, dead brush. Um, We were also able to do burns. We did prescribed burns or, you know, our cultural burns on our land and, you know, improve the fire safety out here. So those were opportunities. And And I look at, you know, kind of what's going on with COVID and I, and I just see it kind of as a, as a signal, for society as a whole is to think about, well, what's the opportunities that we have that are put before us at this moment when we are mostly staying at home, at least I I hope that most people are staying home, and think about, well, what actions can we do to make change that we want to see in the world? You know, and I've asked this even of my own students recently, you know, of of the people who stayed home, you know, isolated and quarantined at, at home, you know, what sorts of habits have you developed that you hope will stick with you in the time after COVID and, and what social changes do you hope happens afterwards? You know, so, so, you know, aside from doing like the forest stewardship part that I mentioned, you know, the other side of, of not going anywhere is that I'm not driving. I haven't driven, you know, hardly at all 
since the time of COVID, you know, at least run down to town to get some groceries and come back home. You know, where where normally, you know, I'm driving quite extensively to return back to the ancestral homelands to collect plant materials for weaving with or to go see family uh, because we don't live nearby. You know, there's a lot of uh, of those kind of things. And, and so I think some of those changes are really important. And I think, well, I'm happy that I'm not contributing to, say, you know, like the carbon dioxide aspect of, of uh, the pollution for whatever reasons I'm happy about that, you know, knowing that I'm not contributing that thing that's contributing to acidification in the ocean, for instance, and, you know, the the contributions of that to the warming situation, you know, all of those things are interconnected. And so if we can think, take these times to think about, well, what behavioral changes can we make as individuals? Because we can always point to what society can do, but right. really, you know, it comes down to our own choices. And so I think that that's really what I see as, as the biggest opportunity and how can we make those changes for ourselves to then lead by example for other people. And that was Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation, professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State, here on American Indian Airwaves. That concludes part one of our two-part interview on how the California fires are impacting California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations, traditional forms of fire management, and the possibility for future cultural sustainability practices in stewarding the land. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Oh 
song Tribal Voice by Yathu Yindi here on American Indian Airwaves. In the second part of our program today, we continue our in-depth interviewing conversation with Don Hankins. He's from the Miwok Nation, and he's professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State. We're speaking on the recent California fires and how they're impacting California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations, the role of government-to-government relationship, the questionability of the U.S. government's trust responsibility with California indigenous peoples, the role of California indigenous peoples' traditional fire management practices, and what that could mean in terms of cultural sustainability for future generations. And now part two of our interview on the impact California fires are having on California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations. I was curious, are you aware of any particular California indigenous nations that are perhaps uh, impacted harder by the fires as a result of the lack of number of people that can practice um, fire management, cultural practices, or just simply be due to lack of resources um, that they're being impacted harder, say, compared to other California indigenous peoples? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, in response to that, it's really the full spectrum, right? I yeah. Mean, we've, got, we've got tribes um, that have you know, their own fire departments and right. tribes with, with large populations, you know, and I think about like up in northwestern California, uh, Yurok and Karuk tribes, and even Hoopa, you know, they've all got, you know, relatively large numbers of, of members and uh, fire departments that are there that they can draw from to help with the suppression side of it, but also then bodies that can help in the traditional side if and when they're ready to start, you know, using that more. And it is happening, you know, it's obviously happening in those places. They have, you know, uh, probably a better capacity in, in, in a lot of respects to get things at, at the scale where maybe it will start to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Whereas other other tribes, particularly low-numbered tribes or tribes that are not state or fairly recognized, while the knowledge may be stronger in those communities, those... Um, you know, the ability for, for, say, an individual or a family to go out and, and, you know, be able to engage at a landscape scale is a little bit more difficult, um, you know, and, and there may not be funding uh, available um, within those systems, you know. So I think about some of the equity issues that exist across communities in terms of, of funding. I think about, um, you know, the capacity of being able to do some of that work. And, and these are things that we're actually working on right now in, in the indigenous fire arena in California. You know, there's actually work that is taking place around these, discuss, you know, discussions and, and ideas right now to try to make things more equitable and make things a little bit more, 
you know, useful within the landscape. But at this point, you know, it's it's really across the board. Very, it's variable across the board, is what I, I guess I'd say. Well, it makes me wonder too. Is uh, our question, at least for federally recognized California Indigenous peoples, you know, what does the trust relationship look like in this particular context, and and is it just a continuation of that kind of paternalistic violence, right, by the federal government in its relationship with? federally recognized California indigenous nations. Right. No, absolutely. And I, and I think about it this way. So in order for um, in order for people living on the federally recognized tribal lands, you know, the trust right. lands, those lands have to have a BIA approved burn plan. Right. And then because of it being under the federal government's ownership, that land then the people who set fire on it need to be recognized within the federal government system for wildland firefighting, so the National Wildland Coordinating Group, they need to meet those standards to be able to set fires. Whereas you may have traditional cultural practitioners who don't have that qualification, don't want to get that qualification because it, it's uh, an infringement on sovereign right, and they're not legally able to go out and burn without fear of being a felon right. um, on those lands. You know, on the flip side, then you can look to the some of the state-recognized and non-recognized tribes, and they're burning on private lands, or maybe they're working on, on uh, trust lands that are owned by, uh, not trust lands, but, uh, you know, like land trust type of lands, uh, non-profit organizations and so forth. There's a lot more freedom to work on those those lands, because maybe then you don't have to follow under the National Wildland Coordinating Group qualification standards for burning, and you don't have to have that same kind of burn plan in place to be able to burn and so there's a lot greater latitude um, in, in some of these areas because of that lack of federal recognition that exists, you know. So those are, those are some really interesting things to, to consider, I think, in, in some of these uh, different areas. Don, in terms of land stewardship, there's all kinds of different cultural understandings of what that means. For example, right, the concept of seventh generation, which has multiple interpretations from different cultures, whether it mean, you know, looking forward seven generations and, and looking back seven generations to understand where you are right now and how your present actions will impact seven generations into the future, or three forward, three back, and looking at the present now. And so I was wondering if maybe you could explain uh, what your understanding of land stewardship means. And in terms of like stewardship, I, you know, when I think like one way I've been trying to get people to think about it, you know, because sometimes that that idea of the three to seven generations, people don't fully grasp that. So, you know, where I'm at in the world, you know, I think about the ecosystems that I through work have to have to be engaged with to steward or through my own cultural obligations to homelands you know, those places that I'm stewarding, I try to envision what that place will be like in 200 years. And, you know, it's kind of hard to do that with climate change happening and, and so forth. But I think, okay, well, you know, like I right now, you know, the, the vegetation around the place where my house is located is uh, what we'd call Sierra Nevada mixed conifer. It's black oak, ponderosa pine, incense cedar, uh, sugar pine, and, and some live oak and a couple of Douglas firs here and there. Those are the dominant trees. But I also know that at this elevation that my house is at, that pines and, the, and you know, the Douglas fir in particular, the ponderosa pines and the Douglas fir in particular, are probably kind of at the, th- at the point that their uh, existence threshold is kind of stressed out. So, 
what OIC is being the most resistant thing within the landscape to, to that change is oaks and probably the sugar pine. And so I'm putting a lot more emphasis on stewarding for those two species in particular because I know also that by me supporting those species and their existence, and if I can have a grove of oaks that makes it to 200 years old, that will be providing acorns that not only people can live off of, but obviously we, we then think about the relations that are also using that system, from, from the flying squirrels to the, to the uh, Columbia black-tailed deer and the bears that are here, and you know, the list goes on and on. And so, you know, I, I, that's what I'm kind of focused in on. And, you know, I get the benefit of being able to go out and harvest some acorns from time to time and some pine nuts, which at this time of year, we're, we're actively doing that. But, you know, beyond that, it's, you know, is that enough to survive off of? No, but if I can, if I can work that same thought elsewhere into the landscape, then in 200 years time, you know, people will still have those resources here to be able to survive off of and uh, our relations too. We may not be here. I don't know. We don't. We don't know what will happen to us within the next 200 years. But hopefully, those relations will be here, and you know, they'll they'll have those things to be able to survive off of. And you're listening to an interview here on American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Don Hankins. He's from the Miwok Nation and professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State. He's speaking on the impact and implications the California fires are having on California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations lands, traditions, storytelling, and the possibility of culturally sustainable futures. And now back to the interview. Don, in listening to you, I can't help but think about Southern California indigenous maritime traditions. For example, the Chumash and the the Tamuls um, and the Tongva people and their Tiats, which are built traditionally out of redwood, out of the redwood trees uh, or the redwood relations. So what happens when we talk about land stewardship and we emphasize certain relations that can grow in these changing soils, in these changing lands, and then there's this de-emphasis, if you will, on other relations because they just can't be sustained. And so that these relations like the redwood start to become threatened and potentially become extinct. And therefore, what are the, the impacts, the cultural impacts, for example, on the maritime traditions of Southern California indigenous peoples? Yeah. And I think it's funny that you bring up the redwoods as an example, because that was one thing watching the Santa Cruz mountains, you know, with the fires that are down there. And, and I grew up on the San Francisco peninsula mm. myself, but you know, thinking about the redwoods and, you know, knowing that biogeographically redwoods were known to be all the way down to Santa Barbara area right. in, you know, 900 years ago. Right. So, you know, and I don't know the tribal knowledge of, of those particular things because that's not my area. But if we think about that change, you know, slow northward migration of, of the redwoods, you know, at what point does San Francisco Peninsula end being, you know, within the range of redwoods. And clearly, you know, one thing that I do recognize in terms of like climate change and having grown up on the coast is that the fog patterns are changing, right? We have less days of fog and, you know, the conditions of the fog are changing. And so if those kind of things are are taking place, then then at what point do redwoods just continue to move north? And as you point out, you know, do people have access to them? You know, and I know that it's not just the tribes in Southern California, but my understanding from some of my Kanaka Maoli friends is that 
they also would get redwoods that had washed across the Pacific, and they would use those to make boats with as well. So, you know, it's like there's a big connection in that web that uh, potentially could be impacted on the cultural side if we lose some of these species. Don, up in Washington, indigenous peoples have been communicating and working with indigenous peoples south of them, say in Oregon and even northern California, as more and more plants and animals are migrating north. And they're working with southern uh, indigenous peoples, right, south of Washington, uh, in order to help them understand how the land's changing, but also how they can adapt to these northern migrations of plants and animals and and make those necessary cultural shifts, if you will, in trying to maintain a sense of cultural sustainability. Right. Well, what I'm hearing is that maybe maybe those of us uh, from Central California need to be paying a little bit more attention to our, our neighbors further south in Ipai, uh country and so forth on Baja. I don't know. I certainly have that vision of, of what the landscape could look like if we continue to have the fires the way we are, are seeing them and, you know, things begin, continue to get drier. Welcome to the land of cacti and, and uh, ironwoods, right? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, to talk about it, too, because, you, know, you know, it can be very, pa- you know, painful, you know, yes. especially if you have, you know, someone like yourself that's more, you know, endowed with a specialized body of knowledge and, and to see that kind of understand what that kind of systemic loss is and, right. and see it happening. Right. Um, But also at the same time, you're also trying to do the work to restore, you know, that that balance. And you understand how uh, daunting that task is on a, you know, breath by breath, day by day, year by year basis. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You're, You're totally right on. And that's actually something I think that people need to be aware of is, you know, and there's a term called solastalgia that is often also then translated to, say, ecological grief. Right. And that's something we all need to be aware of. You know, we, as indigenous people, have a tremendous amount of trauma that exists from, obviously, the impacts of colonization, but also then, you know, the, the, the ramifications of that that have trickled down to, you know, uh, abuse, cycles of abuse that exist and run through families, for instance, that we don't often talk enough about. Right. But... This idea of solastalgia or, or environmental grief is another trauma that we have to recognize and we have to start to work towards. We have to understand it. And there's a lot of work that's been done by uh, a woman. She's not indigenous, but she lives in Canada. Her name's Ashley Consulo. And she has done some really amazing work with indigenous communities in the Arctic regions of Canada and also, I believe, some work in Australia with uh, farmers and, and so forth. But she does some really interesting work around the, the idea of solastalgia and, and environmental grief, and I, and I would encourage anybody who wants to learn more about it to, to look there. But, you know, our relationship with the environment and the ability to steward in a way helps us to offset those, those impacts. So we, when we have direct engagement around it, then... You know, we're not standing by and watching our forests disappear, and we're not standing by and watching the condor go extinct. You know, we're we're engaged in the process, and we're doing everything we can to to ensure that you know the world as we know it is able to still exist. And I think that's an important thing for us to have our eyes to and to be aware of.
Don, in closing, what does cultural sustainability for future generations mean to you? And what is your message for the youth? When I, when I think about the sustainable cultures that I've been exposed to in the world, I guess I'll start with that thought. Are we living in a sustainable way? In California, I would say that very few communities are truly living in as a sustainable way as they, as they could. You know, our ancestors really lived in the most sustainable way they could within the landscape. You know, for thousands of years, they successfully lived in harmony with the adjusting uh, of our climates and our ecosystems and all those things to provide for the populations that lived in, in, in those times. And, you know, at this point, you know, I would say that a lot of us are not able to do that. You know, how many of us are actively out hunting, fishing, gathering for our food, our medicine, our fibers within our ancestral territories? You know, and I, I can say that for me, doing all those activities, I'm always quite proud of the opportunity to put those things on the table and to, you know, be able to share those things with family and, and you know, friends and whatnot. But it's a pretty special occasion when we can sit down and have a meal out of all of our native foods um, that we've collected ourselves and and provided for. And I've been to communities elsewhere, particularly in Australia, in the western desert of Australia, with the Mardu people out there. You know, they're among some of the most remote people in the world, and yet they still have some reliance on the outside world for certain aspects of their living. You know, food, certain food supplies come in, and they're able to, uh, you know, spend money to buy those things to feed them themselves. So, you know, canned meat, for instance, or, you know, vegetables that don't grow in the desert, you know, those kinds of things. But at the same time, you know, their families will take a week or two and go out, you know, into the desert and camp out and set fires and, and collect food and live in that environment. And I would say that you know, upwards of 60% of their traditional diet is still coming from those traditional activities. To me, that's very sustainable. The non-sustainable side of it is obviously having to go to the store to buy certain things and then the accumulation of trash that comes from those sorts of things. And that really becomes apparent when you go to remote communities is how we live in this world. You know, we, we living in California and a lot of our communities, particularly in urban areas, you know, we're fortunate and disconnected from that whole system, right? What happens when you uh, finish that, you know, drink that you're drinking out of that, that uh, manufactured container that's a uh, one-time single use, and where does it go to from there? You know, if, you, if you're having to deal with that and see it on a daily basis, you might start thinking about changing your habits. So those are, you know, some of the things that I see in terms of the cultural sustainability side of it is that is that a goal? Is that where we want to go? Because certainly if we are trying to live more sustainably within our landscapes and to maintain our cultures, then we need to be thinking about ways. And I know that it's hard being part of having to uh, contribute to the economic side of like the United States, for instance. But if we had the ability to simply take that time and, and focus on traditional food collection and, and those sorts of things, those activities and put the food back on the table and that medicine, you know, where we need it, then I think we're getting a lot closer to um, resolving some of the issues that, that globally we deal with, right? You know, in terms, of, in terms of the youth, I say that's a challenge for them. You know, I think it's, uh, it's really the place for youth, I think, to, to be looking at the opportunities that are there and, 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 you know, that we're dealing with currently 
to connect with the elders who know within their community and learn those old ways, but then find a way to utilize that, that information to bring it to the forefront and to, as our ancestral responsibility is to, we've inherited a world in a certain state. We are then, you know, tasked with leaving the world in a better condition than what we've inherited as. So, you know, I think for the future generations, they need to be aware of that and they need to think about the challenges that that, uh, society currently has and how we can integrate this knowledge system into advancing to not be in the same pattern and, you know, of decline as, as frankly, we're in. The moment of silence is over. And that was Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation. He's professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State. He's speaking on the implications and impacts of the California fires on California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Yathu Yindi, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains is over.